and good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. I heard a story the other day that uh, in investigating the tunnels under Gaza, Israeli Defense Force found a hidden room containing the Ark of the Covenant. Now, of all the places I've heard, was supposed to be hidden. Gaza wasn't one of them. Now, there have been a lot of books and movies made around the Ark. And a friend of mine who I thought was well-read made the comment, just what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it first appears in the Old Testament story of Exodus. <coughs> Excuse me, I seem to have developed a uh, respiratory disease. And according to Exodus, after about a year of wandering in the Sinai Desert, God, in the form of a thick cloud, came down to Moses on Mount Sinai during his 40-day stay on the mountain. And he showed Moses the pattern for the tabernacle, sort of mobile temple that uh, people would use to worship in the wilderness, (coughs) and gave him uh, detailed instructions for the construction of the ark be made from acacia wood and in it was supposed to be put the tablets of stone where the Ten Commandments were written. According to the book of Exodus the ark was to be uh, two and a half cubits in length one and a half cubits in width and one and a half cubits in height and that's 52 inches by 31 inches by 31 inches. And it's to be plated entirely with gold. And a crown or molding of gold was to be put around it. Four rings of gold were to be attached to its four legs. And through these, two staves of uh, acacia wood covered in gold for carrying the ark were to be inserted, one on each side. And they were not to be removed. And the box said is... The ark is therefore three boxes together, an inner box of gold, a middle box of wood, and an outer box also made of gold. And interestingly enough, just for your edification, the most rewatched actor is Harrison Ford, and the most rewatched movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark, which um, revolves around searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, on the top of this gold and wooden box was to be placed a large gold statue called a caparet, a tradition known as the mercy seat in Christian translations. And this golden statue was to be uh, two angels or cherubim facing each other and holding a shallow golden bowl in the center. And upon this golden bowls supposedly dwelt a, dwelt a cloud of light known as the Shekinah glory, the uh, complete assembly of the golden box and the cherubim statues finally to be placed behind a veil in the tabernacle. This was a series of tent walls mark off the area the priests were occupied with uh, which the huge Israelite community of tens of thousands was encamped. Exodus chapter 26 goes into quite a bit of detail about the ark. Now when carried, the ark was also supposed to be hidden under a large veil made of skins and blue cloth, always carefully concealed even from the eyes of the priests that carried it. Now the veiled ark was carried about 2,000 cubits in advance of a larger group of Levite priests when the people are on the move. Moses, during this period of time, again wearing a veil to cover his face as it was... uh, Strangely illuminated after his encounter with uh, Yahweh, or God, on Mount Sinai. 
There's been a lot of theories that uh, he may have been exposed to radiation. Now, during the early travels with the Ark, it uh, levitates and flies. It kills hundreds of people. It causes a skin disease on one of Aaron's wives. It parts the river. It does a lot of things. Some are absolutely unbelievable, and some are not. In Numbers 16, we're told the strange tale of a group of 250 Israelite noble sons of various tribes who've decided to rebel against Moses and his brother Aaron and this long, arduous trek to the Promised Land. <coughs> so Moses and Aaron gather up these rebellious tribal leaders and tell them they should let the Ark of the Covenant decide who should command the great host of Israelites. And the 250 rebellious young leaders agree to this, and Moses and Aaron lead them inside the Holy of Holies tent that is uh, within the very large tabernacle enclosure. Now, with each person holding an incense censer of brass, the group enters the Holy of Holies. God tells Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from the rest of the group, which they do, and then fall flat on their faces. Everybody else in the tent is consumed by fire from the ark and killed. Later, Moses tells their father and elders of Israel, Touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all, all their sins. So the ark certainly had the ability to defend itself. Well, after the death of Moses, Joshua leads the Israelites down to the Jordan River. And when the ark was carried by the Levite priest into the bed of the Jordan River, the waters parted as God had parted the waters of the Red Sea, opened a pathway for the entire host to pass through. Joshua then led the Israelites into Canaan, where they laid siege to the city of Jericho. And there Joshua says that God spoke to him, telling him to march around the city once every day for six days with seven priests carrying ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, Joshua told him to march around the city seven times, and then the priests were to blow their horns. Well, at this point, Joshua ordered everybody to shout, and the walls of the city collapsed, so the Israelites were able to charge directly into the center of the city. The city was destroyed with every adult, child, and animal in it, slaughtered by Joshua's army. Only a Roman na uh, woman by the name of Rahab and her family was spared. This was because she had hidden two spies sent by Joshua in her home. Afterward, uh, Joshua had the remains of the city burned and cursed any man who would rebuild Jericho to do so at the cost of his firstborn son. So we're talking about um, <coughs> if the story is to be believed, everybody was aware of the power of the ark. So after this, the ark was taken to an ancient city called Shiloh, north of Jerusalem. It became the first capital of Israel and held the ark to the first temples built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. After that, it was placed in a special room in a temple tabernacle known as the Holy of Holies, similar to a throne room and where one entered the divine presence of God. The Holy of Holies was located in the westernmost end of the temple building. It was a perfect cube, 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. Inside was kept in total darkness and contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was placed the tablets of the covenant. According to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, in the New Testament, Aaron's rod and pot of manna was also put inside the ark. Theoretically, the ark remained in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle at Jerusalem for about 350 years until 586 B.C. when a huge Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar attacked the city. Seems the Babylonians were jealous of Israel's wealth and power and and for many generations sought to destroy the country, which was at the crossroads of most of the major trade routes of the day, had ports on both the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Now, Jerusalem couldn't withstand the siege, and finally the city fell. Temples was looted and destroyed, and the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon. But, one question that's never been answered is, in all this, where was the ark? Was it destroyed? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army or was it taken back to Babylon? Uh, this seems unlikely as such an important artifact as the Ark would have been mentioned as part of the spoils, and it was not. Jeremiah 52, the spoils taken from the Temple of Jerusalem were enumerated, but the Ark of the Covenant is not listed. 
It seemed that such an important object would be mentioned if the Babylonians were now in possession of the Ark and the gold statues on its lid. Apparently the Ark was not in the temple at the time the Babylonians sacked it. So had it been removed to a secret cave beneath the temple or to some other place outside of Jerusalem? Maybe it vanished from the Holy of Holies at some time between 950 B.C. and 600 B.C. The Ethiopian book, the, the Kebra Nagast, makes this claim, as does the theory the Ark was taken to Ireland and Scotland by the Jewish-Egyptian Queen Scotta. So what did become of the Ark? When did it actually disappear from the temple? And then the question becomes, was it destroyed or taken to some secret location? Well, according to the stories coming out of the Israeli Defense Force, they found the Ark in a secret room in one of the tunnels underneath Gaza. Maybe the whole story of the Ark of the Covenant is a myth. Uh, I mean, after all, we're talking about uh, powers beyond anybody's wildest imagination. <coughs> but for all the biblical tales and movies and strange adventures and search of this fabled object, we still have to wonder, what exactly is the Ark of the Covenant? And what strange power did this device have? How could it fly through the air? Was some other machine part of the Ark? Uh... Now, we're going to talk about that as we go along. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to digress, and I'm going to talk about um, our little history segment, since we're talking about history. Now, this is January 10th. Tenth day of the year. Three hundred and fifty-five days remain to the year's over with. This is National Save the Eagle Day. National Take the Stairs Day. National House Plant Appreciation Day. National Oysters Rockefeller Day. National Cut Your Energy Cost Day. National Bittersweet Chocolate Day. Peculiar People Day, and I know a bunch of National Obesity Awareness Week, Veganary Month, Thyroid Awareness Month, National Slow Cooking Month, Bread Machine Baking Month, National Skating Month, January, Dry January, National Blood Donor Month, Manuary. International Brain Teaser Month, National Clean Up Your Computer Month, National Soup Month, Get Organized Month, International Creativity Month, Celebration of Life Month, National Oatmeal Month, National Be Kind of Food Servers Month, National Hot Tea Month, National Birth, Defective, Birth Defects Awareness Month, Get a Balanced Life Month, and National Hobby Month. <coughs> Now, in 49 B.C., Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, signals the start of the Civil War. In 9 A.D., the Western Han Dynasty ends when Wang Mang claims that the divine mandate of heaven called for the end of the dynasty and the beginning of his own, the Chen Dynasty. 69 A.D., Lucius Calpurnius Piso Lucianus is appointed by Galba as deputy Roman emperor. 236, Pope Fabian succeeds Antares to become the 20th Pope of Rome. 1072, Robert Guiscard conquers Palermo and Sicily for the Normans. 1430, Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy, establishes the Order of the Golden Fleece, the most prestigious, exclusive, expensive order of chivalry in the world. Now, it's a Catholic order of chivalry founded uh, by Philip the Good. He did it to celebrate his marriage to Isabella of Portugal. 
Today, two branches of the order still exist, the Spanish and the Austrian. The, grand, the current Grand Masters are King Philippe VI of Spain, my cousin, and Karl von Habsburg, head of the House of Habsburg Lorraine. Grand Chaplain of the Austrian branch is Cardinal Christoph Schönborn, Archbishop of Vienna. Now, the separation of the two existing branches took place as a result of the War of the Spanish Succession. Grand Master of the Order, Charles II of Spain, who was a Habsburg, died childless in 1700, so the succession to the throne of Spain and the Golden Fleece initiated what amounted to a global conflict. On the one hand, Charles, brother of the Holy Roman Emperor, claimed the crown as a agnatic member of the House of Habsburg, which has held the throne for almost 200 years. <coughs> but the late king had named Philip of Bourbon, sister's grandchild, his successor in his will. After the conclusion of the war in 1714, Philip was recognized as king of Spain with the Spanish Netherlands. The old Burgundian territories fell to the Austrian Habsburg. So the two dynasties, the Bourbons of Spain and the Habsburgs of Austria, have ever since continued granting the separate versions of the Golden Fleece. Fourteen seventy five, Stephen the Third of Moldavia defeats the Ottoman Empire at the Battle of Vusli. Sixteen forty five, Archbishop William Laud is beheaded for treason at the Tower of London. Not even God can protect you from the wrath of a member of royalty. Seventeen seventy six, American Revolution, Thomas Paine publishes his pamphlet Common Sense. <coughs> Excuse me. 1791, Siege of Dunlap Station begins near Cincinnati during the Northwest Indian War. 1812, the first steamboat on the Ohio River or the Mississippi River arrives in New Orleans, 82 days after it left Pittsburgh. 1861, American Civil War. Florida becomes the third state to succeed from the Union. 1863, the Metropolitan Railway, the world's oldest underground railway, opens between Paddington and Farringdon marking the beginning of the London Underground. 1870, John D. Rockefeller incorporates Standard Oil. 1901, the first great Texas oil gushers discovered at Spindletop in Beaumont, Texas. 1901, New York, Automobile Club of America installs signs on major highways. 1916, World War I, Imperial Russia begins the Erzurum Offensive, leading to the defeat of the Ottoman Empire's Third Army. Now, the Erzurum Offensive was a major winter offensive by the Russian Army on the Caucasus Campaign during the First World War. It led to the capture of the strategic city of Erzurum. Ottoman forces in winter quarters suffered a series of unexpected reverses that led to a Russian victory. After the defeat at the Battle of Sarakamish, the Ottomans tried to get reorganized. The Armenian genocide made supplying their forces a problem. Trade by Armenians, which had supplied the Ottoman army, was disrupted, of course. Dismissal of Armenian soldiers and the labor battalions, their massacres, further worsened the problem. Nineteen seventeen Imperial Trans Antarctic Expedition. Seven survivors of the Ross Sea Party were rescued after being stranded for several months. Now the Ross Sea Party was a component of Sir Ernest Shackleton's um, Imperial Trans Antarctic Expedition. It was supposed to lay a series of supply depots across the Great Ice Barrier from the Ross Sea to the Beardmore Glacier along the polar route established by earlier Antarctic expeditions. The expedition's main party under Shackleton was to land near Vesel Bay on the Waddell Sea on the opposite coast of Antarctica and march across the continent via the South Pole to the Ross Sea. And as the main party wouldn't be able to carry sufficient fuel and supplies for the whole distance, their survival depended on the Ross Sea Party setting up the supply depots, which would cover the final quarter of their journey. 
Well, things didn't work out as they were supposed to, of course. 1920 Treaty of Versailles takes effect, officially ending World War I for all combatant nations except the U.S. 1920 League of Nations Covenant uh, automatically enters into force when the Treaty of Versailles is ratified by Germany. The uh, League of Nations uh, Covenant was the charter of the League of Nations, signed June 28, 1919. Part 1 of the Treaty of Versailles became effective with the rest of the treaty on uh, January 10, 1920. 1927, French Lang's futuristic film, Metropolis, is released in Germany. 1941, World War II, the Greek army captures Klesora. 1946, the first General Assembly of the United Nations assembles in the Methodist Church, the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. <coughs> Fifty-one nations are represented. 1946, Army Signal Corps successfully conducts Project Diana, bouncing radio waves off the moon and receiving the reflected signals. The... Uh, It was an ex- Project Diana was an experimental project uh, trying to see what they could do with reflected signals. It was the first experiment on radar astronomy and the first active attempt to probe another celestial body. The uh, inspiration for later moon earth, uh, earth moon earth communication techniques. 1940. Um, 1954, BOAC Flight 781 of the Havilland DH-106 Comet explodes and falls into the Tyrrhenian Sea, killing 35 people. 1966, Tashkent Declaration, a peace agreement between India and Pakistan, signed that resolved the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. 1972, Sheikh Mujibar Rahman uh, returns to the newly independent Bangladesh as president after spending nine months in prison in Pakistan. 1980, the New England Journal of Medicine publishes the, the letter um, Addiction Rare in Patients uh, Treated with Narcotics, <coughs> which is later misused to uh, downplay the general risk of addiction in opioids. 1981, Salvadoran Civil War. The FMLN launches its first major offensive, gaining control of most of uh, Morazan and uh, Chalatanegango departments. 1984, Holy See, United States relations. The U.S. and the Holy See, oh, that's Vatican City, don't you know? We established full diplomatic relations after almost 117 years, uh, overturning the U.S. Uh, Congress's 1867 ban on public funding for such a diplomatic envoy. 1985, Sandinista Daniel Ortega becomes president of Nicaragua and vows to continue the transformation of socialism and alliance with the Soviet Union and Cuba. Uh, American policy continues to support the Contras in their revolt against the Nicaraguan government. It's interesting that... uh, only the group that benefits from socialism is in favor of it. Um, <coughs> well, eventually he was uh, taken out. 1990, Time Warner is formed by the merger of Time and Warner Communications. 2000, Crosshair Flight 498, a Saab 340 aircraft, crashes in Niederhassel, Switzerland, after taking off in Zurich Airport, killed 13 people. 2007, a general strike begins in Ghana in an attempt to get President Lasano Conte to resign. 2012, a bombing at Jamrud in Pakistan kills at least 30 and injures 78. 2013, more than 100 people are killed and 270 injured in several bomb blasts in the Keita area of Pakistan. 2015, a traffic accident between an oil tanker truck and passenger coach en route to uh, 
Shakapura from Karachi on the Pakistan National Highway Link Road near uh, Gulshan-e-Hadid, Karachi, kills at least 62. And in 2019, 13-year-old American girl, Jamie Cross, Kloss, is found alive in Gordon, Wisconsin, having been kidnapped uh, 88 days early from her parents' home while they were murdered. The... Uh, <laughs> 21-year-old uh, <coughs> uh, Thomas Patterson abducted the 13-year-old from her family's home in Barron, Wisconsin. Forced his way inside and shot her parents. Took her to a house 70 miles away in rural Gordon, Wisconsin and held her captive for 88 days until she escaped in January of 2019. Police took Patterson into custody after... Uh, while in custody, he said he did uh, kidnap Kloss and murdered her parents. Pled guilty to two counts of first-degree intentional homicide and one count of kidnapping. Um, Jimmy Kloss has become an advocate for missing and exploited children. Well, we have been talking about uh, the Ark. Now, in the, the Old Testament, there are two different tabernacles that are discussed. One's a tabernacle in King Solomon's temple, which is made of stone with a special room to house the ark. And before this, while the ark was on the move, it was kept in a series of tents and fabric walls. It was known as the tabernacle in the wilderness. <coughs> the Holy of Holies was an inner sanctuary within the tabernacle and temple in Jerusalem where the ark of the covenant was kept. Located at the westernmost end of the temple building, which uh, was eventually determined to be a very interesting location. The inside was kept dark and contained the ark which in which was placed the tablets of the covenant. You know them as the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod, and a part of manna. The mercy seat was where the divine presence would manifest. And at times, the divine presence would speak to Moses, but at other times, it would discharge some powerful energy and literally zap the people who stood around the ark. Holy of Holies was entered once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, that's Yom Kippur, sprinkled the blood of sacrificed animals. A uh, bull offers his atonement for the priest in his household, and a goat offers his atonement for the people. The priest also offered uh, incense uh, upon the ark and the, uh, the covenant and the mercy seat, which sat on top of the ark. The uh, second temple had no ark, and the blood was sprinkled where the ark would have been, and the incense was left on the foundation stone. Animals sacrificed on the brazen altar, and the blood was carried into the most holy place. Now, visitors went into the tabernacle and uh, entered by way of the east room. That room was without wonders and was illuminated solely by light created by what's known as the golden candlestick. And that candlestick, which is known as a menorah, had six branches and a shaft upon which left rested seven lamps. And the purest olive oil was used in the lamps and they burned continuously. All right. Inside the east room, on the right, was a table. which is arranged 12 loaves of shoe bread. They were in two piles. Each had six loaves. Unleavened bread, representative of the service of mankind, which culminated in the planting and harvesting of the grain and symbolized the 12 time, uh, tribes of Egypt. Uh, now, there was... In 586 B.C., the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple. Large portions of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the surrounding area were taken into captivity in Babylon and at least a number of years later and came back to Jerusalem in about 536 B.C. But there's absolutely no mention in any record of what happened to the Ark. Second temple was built about 516 B.C. and 
lasted to about 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. And since some of the original artifacts were lost after the destruction of the first temple, the second temple lacked a holy uh, number of holy relics. The ark containing the tablets of stone, the, the Urim and Thummim, those were divination objects contained in the high priest's breastplate, uh, the holy oil, the sacred fire. The gold censers may have been replaced and would be standing in the Holy of Holies and sacrificial blood was sprinkled where the ark would have been and the incense was left on the foundation stone. Now the, the Urim and the Thummim really weren't well described in the Bible. And there had been a lot of speculation as to exactly what they were. And from the context in which they're mentioned, it's implied there's some kind of objects used in a yes or no prophecy type game. Uh, according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, uh, objects connected with the breastplate of the high priest and using a kind of divine oracles called the breastplate of judgment. It's four square and double, and the twelve stones were were not put inside the, the hoshen or the the breastplate, but on the outside. Uh, it's related in the Levi. Uh, that went in compliance with the command in Exodus. Uh, Moses consecrated Aaron and his sons as priest. Moses put upon Aaron the, the coat and girded him with the girdle and clothed him with the robe. I put the uh, ephod upon him and girded him with the, the cunningly woven band of the ephod and bound it unto him therewith. Now, the Thummim is widely considered to, to mean innocent. Well, Urim comes from a root word meaning light, so some kind of reference to revelation and truth might be inferred at this point. According to Wikipedia, most of the Talmudic rabbis and the Jewish Roman historian Josephus followed the belief that divination by the Urim and the Thummim uh, involved questions being answered by great rays of light shining out of certain jewels on the best breastplate. Some folks even believe the 12 stones that are inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Egypt each stood for certain letters and words could be formed from the succession of lights. Most people think it was a simpler, uh, more simple affair than that and was more of a yes or no proposition. In this sense, drawing out the thumen from behind the breastplate might mean uh, innocent and you're guilty. Or it might mean yes, it might mean no. The Urim and Thummim were kept inside the breastplate, so some callers think they were relatively small items. Um, it's interesting to note that uh, as advanced as they were in some areas, the Israelis firmly believed in omens. And dreams. <coughs> and, you know, what the priest wore, which is very strictly detailed in the Bible, is also raises interesting questions. Moses had minute instructions as to how to outfit the priest. Usual priestly vestments had eight components linen trousers, a linen tunic, an intricate belt or sash, a robe an apron called an ephod, and the breastplate, a turban, and a little band attached to the turban with a blue sash. And unfortunately for a lot of folks, Ark had a habit of uh, doing harm to people that got close to it. So it was suspected this special garb the priest wore was some kind of a protective gear. According to the book of Ezekiel, the priests will wear only linen garments into the inner court and temple. Definitely no wool, since they can't wear anything that makes them perspire. When they leave the inner sanctuary and go to the outer courtyard where the people are, they are to change clothes and leave the ones they were wearing inside. So that the people are not consecrated through contact with their garments. It's suspected by many that... Uh, the garments become saturated with some type of uh, radiation that could contaminate those that got near it. Also, according to the book of Exodus, 
like pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn all in the hem of the robe. Golden bells between them. Golden bells, the pomegranates that alternate around the hem of the robe. <coughs> and Aaron had to wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bells will be heard when he went into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he won't be killed. And further, according to Exodus, make linen garments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons have to wear them whenever they enter the tent of the meeting or approach the altar to minister to the holy place. So you have to ask yourself, what is so dangerous about entering the holy place of the ark that being a priest was a deadly profession? Now, there's been a number of theories proposed. It is important to note that many of the outer garments were to be interwoven with gold metallic thread. And the metal strip attached to the turban was to be a gold plate that hung on the priest's forehead. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the Jewish Hasmonean kingdom came into power... Uh, and ruled uh, Jerusalem about 140 B.C. when it was conquered by uh, the Romans in 63 B.C. Salome Alexandra, the queen of the Asmonean kingdom, appointed her elder son, Hyrcamus II, as her heir, but a younger son, Aristobulus II, was determined to have the throne. When Queen Salome Alexandra died, the younger brother grabbed the throne while his brother was out of town, and that began a civil war. AD six, in B.C. 63, the Romans were fighting the third Mithridatic War. Roman General Pompey was in northern Syria fighting against the Armenians when he, was, when he sent a lieutenant to investigate what was going on in uh, Judea. Both Hyrcanus and Aristobulus uh, appealed to the Roman general for support. Pompey returned to his tent for some days and began to march uh, to Jerusalem. Aristobulus was tired of waiting and took his small army off to return to Jerusalem with, with what forces he, uh, which his forces controlled at that point. He was chased by Pompey and his superior Roman army and eventually surrendered. And Aristobulus's uh, followers closed Jerusalem to Pompey's forces. Now the Romans surrounded a city and stormed it in 63 B.C., making Jerusalem and Judea uh, proper. Samaria and uh, Edomia into the Roman provinces of, of uh, Eodea. The uh, restoration of Herod the Great as king in 37 B.C. made Israel a Roman client state and marked the end of the Hasmonean dynasty. Which just goes to show, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Um, Aristobulus wanted Roman involvement and got much more than he anticipated. Now the priests continue with the religious practices inside the temple all during the siege. The temple itself wasn't looted or harmed by the Romans. Pompey himself went into the Holy of Holies and the next day ordered the priests to repurify the temple and resume the religious practices. And meanwhile, Herod began an expansion and restoration of the second temple. So religious worship um, in Jerusalem continued, much as it had in the past. When Flavius Josephus wrote the book The Jewish War, we're told that when the Roman emperor Caligula planned to place his own statue inside the temple. Herod's son, Agrippa I, was able to intervene and convince him not to do it. That was asking for problems. Well, because of a Jewish rebellion against Rome in 66 A.D., the general Titus and his legions retook the city in 70 A.D. It was 74 years after Herod died and destroyed a lot of the second temple which is now called Herod's Temple by historians. 
Many of the treasures of the Second Temple, including huge menorah candelabra, were taken back to Rome and used to fund the building of the Colosseum and the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is a famous monument even today and features a Roman victory procession with soldiers carrying spoils from the temple, including a very large menorah. And although the Jews were allowed to inhabit the destroyed city after A.D. 70, Jerusalem and the remains of the Second Temple are dismantled by the Roman Emperor Hadrian at the end of the Bar Kokhba Revolt in 135 A.D. This time he established a new city he called Elia Capitolina, and the Jews were banned from living there. A pagan Roman temple was set up on the former side of the Second Temple. Muslim influence increased in the region. A small prayer house was built on the temple site by the Rashidim Caliph Umar, but the first Al-Aqsa Mosque was a large structure begun by the Umayyad Caliph Abdel-Malik and furnished by his, finished by his son Al-Walid in 705 A.D. 746 A.D., an earthquake destroyed the mosque. It was rebuilt by the Abbasid Caliph Al-Mansar in 754 A.D. Another earthquake destroyed most of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in 1033, but two years later, a new mosque was built by the Fatimid Caliph uh, Ali Az-Zahir. Basically, that's the mosque that stands on Solomon's Temple Mount to the present day. And at present, it's believed that the sanctified place, what's known as the Holy of Holies, is located under the Dome of the Rock Shrine, which stands next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. <laughs> Most Orthodox Jews today completely avoid climbing up the Temple Mount. That's to prevent them from accidentally stepping on the most holy place or any sanctified areas. And some Ark hunters believe the Ark of the Covenant may be hidden in the secret tunnel somewhere beneath the Dome of the Rock or the Wailing uh, Wall of the Temple. That's the Western Wall, a scene of devotional Jewish worship. In the Western Wall, the Former Second Temple is one of the largest megalithic building stones ever used, the so-called Western Stone. It's a monolithic uh, granite block that forms part of the lower level of the Western Wall in Jerusalem. To see it, visitors have to enter a tunnel along the northwest side of the Western Wall on a guided tour. <coughs> Ranks is the fifth heaviest stone ever quarried, at least according to Wikipedia. Estimated weight is 570 tons, making it smaller than the gigantic stones at Baalbek and larger than the Great Stella at Oxen. It's 13.6 meters or 44.6 feet long and 9.8 feet high, an estimated width of 10.8 feet. Well, Wilson's... Uh, Arch is the modern name for an ancient stone arch whose top is visible in the northwest corner of the western wall. It once spanned 42 feet, supporting a row and aqueduct that continued for 75 feet and allowed access to a gate that was level with the surface of the Temple Mount. First identified in 1864 by Charles William Wilson, for whom it was named. He joined the British Ordnance Survey of Jerusalem in 1864 and in a surveying project to improve the city's water system. Excuse me. Now, the big concern is that the gigantic cut stone block, so big and important and it's called by name, is, is baffling to the archaeologists of all types. It's past the most controversial object at the Temple Mount. You have to ask who could have uh, quarried this massive block of stone and put it at the northwest corner of the foundation stones of the Temple Mount. Mainstream archaeologists currently credit Herod and his Roman engineers uh, with erecting this gigantic smooth stone as well as all the other smaller stone blocks around it. But there's a lot of question about that. It was seen that archaeologists are making the same mistake at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem there as they are with the even larger blocks at Baalbek in Lebanon. Both sites have similar gigantic blocks on a lower level of what became Roman reconstruction efforts on Earlier megalithic temples. Baalbek is a mysterious prehistoric megalithic platform that has Roman Temple of Jupiter built on top of it. Roman construction is impressive enough, but some of the gigantic blocks, including some still at the nearby quarry, would seem to have 
been impossible to move, not only by the Romans, but even by modern machinery. So you have to ask, did the Romans really cut and erect the largest stones at Baalbek? It would not appear they did. And similarly with the western stone, it's likely the blocks came from an earlier period, maybe around 1000 B.C. Western stones apparently like the ashlars at Baalbek, left over from some gigantic stone platform that was part of some unknown structure that's almost entirely vanished. Stones that couldn't be relocated by the Romans or even King Solomon in their efforts to make a new structure out of the blocks of an earlier structure. And you'd think that modern archaeologists would have begun to realize the western stone in much of the lower part of the wall predates any Roman attempts to expand and rebuild the second temple. It's clear that the western stone is very old and part of the earliest phase of any building on the Temple Mount. It uh, would appear to even be older than King David and King Solomon. And it's possible that Solomon, in possession of the Ark at that time, was able to levitate or maybe move this 570-ton stone into place, but more likely this block and the ones below it are the work of the Nephilim, whom the Israelites regarded as giants. And if Goliath was any... Uh, guide by which to determine the height of the Nephilim. At least twice the height of a uh, normal human. Now the smaller square and rectangular blocks above the western stone are clearly not the original stones meant to be interlocked with this block. The Roman engineers probably did that. And the western stone is very smooth and highly articulated, as are the stones beneath it. And all these stones are well cut and they're fitted together perfectly. There are at least eight smaller stones beneath the western stone. And there's a large notch at the top of the western stone. Probably originally meant to have another megalith with a similar notch fitted into it. Beginning a pattern that was probably repeated. And this megalithic stonework would have consisted of finely cut blocks that were locked together uh, into each other with occasional notches and kind of in a jigsaw puzzle. And there may have been keystone cuts and metal clamps in some of these walls, but you can't see them now. Maybe it was a site of such imposing architecture that convinced the Israelites, like the Greeks and their Cyclopean construction, that it could only be attributed to men who were of giant statue and capable of lifting these great stones. The cutting and articulation and polishing of these fine feats of construction are amazing enough, but it's the moving of these blocks that is the most incredible. Why would anybody want to cut and move such an enormous block of stone? Perhaps they wanted to do something that was the most difficult thing they could imagine. Basically, the spot that held the Ark of the Covenant in the first temple is somewhere near the megalithic construction of the western stone and the stones beneath it. The uh, the box-like notches on the western stone uh, probably came from a later time. Maybe that of King Solomon when iron tools were used to make these notches so that uh, wooden beams could be inserted to create ceiling beams and floor joints. But maybe some sort of large machine was mounted to them in the distant past. You know, the, the ancients are much more advanced than we ever gave them credit for. <coughs> the open priests believed the Ark of the Covenant was used to move large stones like the obelisk of Axum. Had the Ark helped in levitating the 570-ton block known as the Western Stone? You know, the Holy of Holies, the Western Stone, entire Temple Mount area have a bizarre history. It goes back thousands of years. Now, the Temple Mount's a, a location, many myths, and a lot of mystique. It has the mysterious megalithic blocks similar to those at Baalbek and larger megalithic walls in Peru and Bolivia. Also a locale in one of the most curious episodes of the Quran, Mohammed's much-debated night flight. You know, the Quran, and more so the Hadith, that's the writings after Mohammed's death, give a fractured and incredible story of Mohammed going out for an evening stroll from his cousin's house in the Kaaba of uh, Mecca, about ten years after he conquered Mecca and Medina, and meeting the archangel Gabriel. 
Gabriel whisked him away in a flying machine, the uh, Barak, said to be a type of flying horse, to the mosque at the uh, furthest place, presumed to be the Masjid al-Aqsa in Jerusalem. After playing, Muhammad once again mounted the Barak and was taken by Gabriel to the various heavens to meet the earlier prophets and then met God. <coughs> Muhammad was instructed to tell his followers they were to offer prayers 50 times a day. However, at the urging of Moses, Muhammad returned to God and negotiated the number of times of prayer and it got it reduced to 10 and then eventually five times per day. Then the Barak transported Muhammad back to the Mecca and that long night was over. You know, it's a strange story, one that would call some to doubt its authority or authenticity. I mean, how could it be true? Are there really flying horses? Or is Barak some sort of Vimana flying machine that's featured so heavily in the, the epics of ancient Indian Ethiopia's uh, Kebra and Nagas. It would seem the, the Quran and the Hadith are talking about a flying machine of some sort, which uh, in ancient times was often depicted as a flying horse, a flying cart, a flying carpet. In ancient India, aerial flight was usually depicted as a chariot being drawn through the air by swans or other large birds. In Tibet, Mongolian threats. <laughs> Okay, sorry about that, folks. Yeah, I seem to be sinking rapidly. Uh, as I said, in Tibet and Mongolia and throughout Central Asia, flying vehicles are usually depicted as flying horses. In fact, the Tibetan flag to this day often depicts the Sintamani horse that flies through the sky and has a box or an ark on its back. And the Quran doesn't actually give us very much information about this night flight. But it is mentioned in Surah 17. And the strange flying vehicle called the Barak is not mentioned at all in the Quran, but is mentioned in a lengthy discussion in the Hadith. Here it said that Muhammad mounted the Barak, and in the company of Gabriel, they traveled to the furthest mosque. <coughs> well, on that note, and because I'm sinking rapidly, we're going to bring it to an end. I'll be talking more about the uh, the Ark tomorrow. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.